0: Since the spring, we've been studying through Luke's gospel, and I think it's safe to say uh, that we are nearing the climax of Luke's biography of Jesus. The tension has been mounting. Luke's gospel began by describing the circumstances and the the genealogical background of Jesus' birth. Jesus, Luke tells us in the first three chapters, is the promised Messiah that the Old Testament anticipated and announced. Jesus is the new Adam. He's the promised offspring of Abraham, a prophet like Moses and a king from the line of David. Jesus' identity as the Messiah was proven. Proven. As he overcame the devil's temptations, cast out demons, healed the sick and paralyzed, called 12 disciples to follow him, raised the dead, and and forgave sinners. Chapters 4 through 9 of Luke's Gospel taught us that Jesus is actually able to reverse the curse and brokenness that this world suffers under. As chapter 9 comes to a close, the the Gospel of Luke, it took a turn toward Jerusalem. Jesus started walking toward the city, and along the way he faced opposition from the Jewish religious leaders. As he was teaching about his kingdom, the the religious leaders began to plot and plan to put him to death. Part of what made them so angry was that Jesus revealed that he was the king of the kingdom of God. And that his kingdom was open to sinners who would come to him, confess their sin, and believe in his power to forgive. Jesus opened his kingdom to the spiritually poor and needy, but he closed it to those who in their pride and self-righteousness would refuse to receive him. And so, in chapters 10 through 19, we learned that Jesus' kingdom was not ultimately of this world, but of the world to come. Roughly since chapter 20, we've been studying the final days of Jesus in Jerusalem. His death is fast approaching. We've studied Jesus last night before the cross, and last week we studied the first half of Luke chapter 23. We considered what took place on the morning of Jesus' death. He endured several trials. And he was declared to be innocent no less than five times. Nevertheless, Jesus was traded for a guilty man named Barabbas. And that is where we concluded our study of Luke's gospel last week. And it's where we're going to pick up our study this morning. If you haven't done so already, let me encourage you to turn in your Bibles to open your Bibles to Luke chapter 23. This morning we're especially looking at verses 26 to 56, and in the Bibles provided, I believe that can be found on page 884, 884. In this section, we see Jesus led to the cross, crucified as a criminal, mocked by nearly everyone around him, and breathe his last. It is a sobering scene. As we study this portion of God's Word, we want to get a hold of what happened and why it happened. To that end, we'll study Luke chapter 23, verses 26 to 56 in four sections under four headings. One, Jesus is rushed to the cross. Two, Jesus is railed at by onlookers. Three, Jesus rescues Jesus. Ruined sinners. And four, Jesus' body rests in the grave. And I'll repeat each of those points as we're moving into each new section. Let's begin first. Let's first consider how Jesus is rushed to the cross. Jesus is rushed to the cross. And let me read for us Luke 23, verses 26 to 31. Luke 23, verses 26 to 31. And as they led him away For behold, the days are coming when they will say, Blessed are the barren and the wombs that never bore and the breasts that never nursed. Then they will begin to say to the mountains, Fall on us, and to the hills, cover us. For if they do these things when the wood is green, what will happen when it is dry? As you recall from our study last week, Pilate. He, he made a politically expedient decision and handed Jesus over to be crucified. Jesus was tried by Pilate and by Herod only to be condemned and all of this actually occurred before noon. Here in these verses Jesus is being rushed to the cross. Jesus carried his cross some distance but undoubtedly tired from little sleep and having been beaten by multiple men. It is no surprise that someone is called upon to carry Jesus' cross, to to keep things moving, really. We're not told why Simon of Cyrene is seized and compelled to carry Jesus' cross, but it is possible that he would become one of the first disciples of Jesus. In Acts chapter 11 verse 20, we're told that believers from Cyrene came and preached the gospel in Antioch. I wouldn't be surprised if Simon was a well-known believer to Luke and to others in the first century. This is an eyewitness account of Jesus' life, after all. And Luke may have sought Simon's testimony for this gospel. Whatever the case may be, when Simon takes up Jesus' cross, this enables Jesus to engage the crowd and the women who were mourning and lamenting for him. And I wonder if you think Jesus' words to these women are strange. I wonder... If they remind you of anything, perhaps the words we read from Zechariah 12. This is what we read in Zechariah chapter 12, verse 10. And I will pour out on the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem a spirit of grace and pleas for mercy, so that when they look on me, on him whom they have pierced, they shall mourn for him, as one mourns for an only child and weep bitterly over him, as one weeps over a firstborn. These women are weeping for what is happening to Jesus. And Jesus basically says, Don't cry for me. What a strange reply from Jesus. Jesus calls them the daughters of Jerusalem. And this is an expression that's found throughout the prophets. And it's often a negative expression. Anticipating judgment just consider what we read in Isaiah chapter 3, verses 16 and 17. The Lord said, because the daughters of Zion, Zion's another name for Jerusalem, because the daughters of Zion are haughty and walk with outstretched necks, glancing wantonly with their eyes, mincing along as they go, tinkling with their feet. Therefore, the Lord will strike with a scab the heads of the daughters of Zion. The Lord will lay bare their secret parts. I wonder, are you beginning to piece together what Jesus is saying here to these women? Jesus tells them to weep for themselves and for their children. Why? We'll look at verse 29. Because unbearable days are coming. Days in which people will wish that they did not have children. They will actually bless barren women because of the severity of the judgment they are enduring. The difficulty of the days will be so catastrophic that they will wish the mountains would fall on them and bring their suffering to an end. That sounds like what we read in Hosea chapter 10, verse 8. The high places of Aven, the sin of Israel, shall be destroyed. Thorn and thistle shall grow up on their altars. And they shall say to the mountains, Cover us, and to the hills, Fall on us. None of this makes sense. Unless you remember what Jesus said in Luke chapter 21. If you turn back there, you'll look and see that Jesus gives this long speech. It's called his Olivet Discourse. And Jesus predicted the destruction of Jerusalem. He predicted what actually would happen in AD 70. When the Roman army would march on Jerusalem, surround it. And suffering and starvation would befall the city. And those inside the city, their suffering would be so severe that parents would start eating their children. Secular historians record the siege with horror because it was so violent. And looking back, what becomes clear is that the curses of the old covenant found in Deuteronomy 28 came crashing down upon the city of Jerusalem in AD 70. Is, is Jesus, then, just being spiteful as he's rushed to the cross? Is this l- the last gasp of a man who is saying, fine, you, you've condemned me, now I'm going to condemn you. Is that what Jesus is doing here? No. Jesus is once again warning his followers of the judgment that is coming upon the Jewish people and upon Jerusalem for their rejection of him as the Messiah. Those first reading Luke's gospel would have been reminded when they see the Roman army surrounding Jerusalem that they should flee. This is a word of judgment from Jesus, but for those who believe it is a merciful reminder to escape The coming judgment. And we need to be clear. Jesus is saying that the judgment is coming upon Jerusalem because of the Jewish religious leaders' rejection of him. This best explains this kind of proverb that you see Jesus uttering there in verse 31 when he says, For if they do these things when the wood is green, what will happen when it is dry? In other words, if Rome is going to do this to me, one who's innocent, actually, innocent of insurrection... Innocent of rebellion, then what will they do to you, Jerusalem, you who are actually guilty? In AD 70, Rome's punishment of Jerusalem for their rebellion will come into line with God's punishment upon Jerusalem for their rejection of God's Messiah. What's the point of all of this? Why do we have this conversation about a coming judgment as Jesus is rushed to the cross and, and to his death? We have this word from Jesus because he is compassionate and merciful. As strange as it may sound, these verses teach us that judgment befall those, befalls those who reject God's Messiah. So, an application for us don't reject God's Messiah. It's as simple as that. A greater judgment is coming than even that of God's judgment upon Jerusalem in AD 70. An eternal judgment awaits those who reject Jesus. Don't reject him. Embrace him in faith. Brothers and sisters in Christ, we should not weep for Jesus in the sense that as an innocent man he endured an unjust punishment. We should weep for those who have and are rejecting Jesus. Are you, I wonder, are, are, are you offended when someone uses the name of the Lord Jesus in vain? Are you offended for the Lord Jesus when his name is used as a, a curse, or is a kind of a common name? More than being offended, I think that we should be filled with sorrow for these friends. They use God's name and Jesus' name in that way because they've rejected Him in all likelihood. They, they, they don't revere the Lord Jesus. More than being offended, we should be filled with sorrow because they don't know that salvation is found in no other name but the name of Jesus Christ. If Jesus should not be rejected, He should also not be despised and mocked, which is what we see in our next section. Let's turn now and consider our second point. Jesus is railed at by onlookers. Jesus is railed at by onlookers. Uh, Let me read verses 32 to 39. Two others who were criminals were led away to be put to death with him. And when they came to the place that is called the Skull, There they crucified him and the criminals, one on his right and one on his left. And Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. And they cast lots to divide his garments, and the people stood by watching. But the rulers scoffed at him, saying... Save yourself and us. If you take a look at verse 32 there, you'll notice that it continues the path to the cross. But it does so by noting that Jesus is accompanied by two criminals. As we thought about last week, in all likelihood, there were actually supposed to be three criminals crucified that day. But Jesus was traded for Barabbas earlier that morning. Barabbas was guilty of murder and insurrection, but Jesus was innocent. The guiltless gave his life for the guilty. Verse 32 reminds us that Jesus is fulfilling the prophecy of Isaiah 53, verse 12, where we are told that the suffering servant would be numbered with the transgressors. Verse 33, you see, there marks Jesus' arrival at the cross, the place where he's going to be crucified. Having arrived at the place that is called the skull, Jesus and the two criminals are crucified. It may be that this place looked like a a skull, either from the, the back or the front, or it may be that the concept of a skull evoked an image of death, and so it was called by that name to strike fear into the hearts of the Jews. The Romans used the practice of crucifixion as a means of intimidation as well as punishment, and it was effective. What is striking to me is how little space Luke devotes to describing Jesus' crucifixion compared to the space he spends describing the surrounding conversations. I mean, if you look at the middle of verse 33, we've got four words devoted to describing Jesus' crucifixion. you see them there? There, they crucified them. That's it. In the Greek, it's actually only three words. In English, we've got four. We've got movies and music videos that give more graphic descriptions of Jesus' crucifixion than this. In fact, none of the Gospel writers devote much of their time describing just precisely what was taking place in the crucifixion. They're pretty scarce on details, not only because it was gruesome, but also because it wasn't the main focus. Uh, While the Gospel writers are concerned with the what and the how of what happened in Jesus' crucifixion, it appears that they were more concerned with the why and the who. We learn the answers to these questions, the, the why and the who, through the lens of the words that are spoken, really, around the cross. And surprisingly, especially, through the words of those who opposed Jesus. Before we consider those words, we've got to consider Jesus' words. In verse 34, Jesus petitions, he he prays, petitions his Father in heaven. He prays, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. Is this not a staggering prayer? The words them and they are, are actually intentionally broad. Here Jesus is asking the Father to forgive those who are responsible for his death. Jesus is praying for the forgiveness of everyone who had a hand in his death, and virtually everyone had a hand in his death. From the Jewish religious leaders to Pilate and Herod to the Roman soldiers and to the crowd. Isn't Jesus merciful, compassionate, and abounding in love? You know, earlier I quoted from Isaiah 53, verse 12, and I explained that Jesus, here he's being numbered with the transgressors. Do you know what comes next in that verse? Here's what comes next in Isaiah 53, verse 12. Yet he bore the sin of many and makes intercession for the transgressors. You see what Jesus is doing here in this prayer? He's interceding for those who are responsible for his death. He's, he's praying, Father, I'm giving my life to bear their sins. Would you not count their sins against them? Count them against me. Forgive them. Pardon them. This is what Jesus is praying for those who are are bartering for his garments. And here we are reminded of what we read earlier in the service from Psalm 22, verses 16 to 18. Brothers and sisters, listen to these verses which so clearly predicted what we're seeing here. Psalm 22, verse 16. For dogs, and in the New Testament terms, that would sometimes be a reference to Gentiles. For dogs encompass me. A company of evildoers encircles me. They have pierced my hands and feet. I can count all my bones. They stare and gloat over me. They divide my garments among them. And for my clothing they cast lots. That's what's happening here. Now take a look at verse 35 and let these words sink in. And the people stood by. The the people stood by. The people who had followed him. The people who heard him teach about the love of God, the forgiveness of sins and the grace of the kingdom. The people who had seen him heal the sick, feed the hungry, and raise the dead. They they just stood there and watched. They watched as in four successive rounds Jesus is harangued. First we have the, the rulers scoffing in verse 35. Then we have the soldiers mocking in verse 36, followed by Pilate insulting with his sign, his inscription in verse 38. Fourthly, we've got one of the criminals railing at Jesus in verse 39. And of course, all of this fulfills what we read earlier in the service again from Psalm 22, verses 7 and 8. All who see me mock me. They make mouths at me. They wag their heads. He trusts in the Lord. Let him deliver him. Let him rescue him, for he delights in him. When the soldiers offered Jesus sour wine, they were fulfilling what we read in Psalm 69, verses 19 to 21. There we read, You know my reproach and my shame and my dishonor. My foes are all known to you. Reproaches have broken my heart. Think about that coming from Jesus. All of these things that he's hearing, they break his heart. Reproaches have broken my heart so that I'm in despair. I looked for pity, but there was none, and for comforters, but I found none. They gave me poison for food, and for my thirst, they gave me sour wine to drink. I don't know if you've noticed this, but in all of their jeering, it revolves around two complementary claims, that Jesus is the Christ and that Jesus is the King. In the Old Testament, those two concepts are, are complementary and essentially they, they explain one another. From the Old Testament vantage point, the Christ, God's chosen one, his anointed one, as the rulers put it in verse 35, is God's anointed King. Uh, This is most clearly seen in Psalm 2 where God's anointed one, his Christ, is enthroned as the ruler, the king of the nations. Most of the Old Testament prophets declare that the Christ will be a king from the line of David. And we know from Luke's genealogy that that's precisely who Jesus is. And all of this railing at Jesus you see here is couched in terms of if. there's There's a question about this, isn't there? If you are the king... If you are the Christ. And what those railing at Jesus don't realize is that they are unwittingly participating in proving that Jesus is the Christ. That he is the king. He's the one that all of these Old Testament scriptures I've just quoted you point to. Whenever I read the accounts of Jesus' trials and crucifixion, uh, my mind is always taken to a 19th century book on Baptist church structure and government written by J.L. Reynolds. This is how Reynolds opens his book on church government. When Christ uttered in the judgment hall of Pilate the remarkable words, I am a king, he pronounced a sentiment fraught with unspeakable dignity and power. His enemies might deride his pretensions and express their mockery of his claim by presenting with a crown of thorns, a reed, and a purple robe, and nailing him to a cross. But... In the eyes of unfallen intelligences, he was a king. A higher power presided over that derisive ceremony and converted it into a real coronation. That crown of thorns was indeed the diadem of empire. That purple robe was the badge of royalty. That fragile reed was the symbol of unbounded power. And that cross, the throne of dominion, which shall never end. Jesus is the Christ. Jesus is the King. And the cross proves it. And part of the irony of what we're we're reading here is that all this railing actually accurately reveals who Jesus is is and what he came to do. So when the, the rulers scoff at Jesus, there in verse 35, saying, he saved others, let him save himself. They are identifying the central work of God's Messiah. He came on a mission to save. And the same issue of salvation turns up when the soldiers mock him in verse 36. If you are the king of the Jews, save yourself. And skip down to the criminal railing at him in verse 39. Save yourself. And us, he says. Luke does not want us to miss this. He uses their railing at Jesus to reveal that he is the Savior of all who would believe. The Old Testament promised the Messiah would come as a Savior and that salvation would come through his suffering. He had to be struck, the serpent had to strike his heel. In the words of Isaiah's prophecy, he had to be despised and rejected by men. He had to be acquainted with grief. He had to be stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. He had to be pierced for our transgressions. He had to be crushed for our iniquities. It is his chastisement that brought us peace. It is by his wounds that we are healed. It is precisely because Jesus came to save others that he could not, would not, save himself. It is precisely in offering himself as a substitutionary sacrifice for sin, the guiltless for the guilty, that he is able to save others. Jesus made a conscious decision on that cross to scorn the devil, to submit to his Father's will, and to give his life for sinners. So so what will you do? Will you rail at him? Or will you receive him? Maybe you don't know what it looks like, what it means to receive Jesus. If that's so, let me encourage you to pay special attention to two men in our next section. Luke 23, verses 40 to 59. Here we're thinking about how Jesus rescues ruined sinners. Jesus rescues ruined sinners. Let me read verses 40 to 49 now. But the other... This is the other criminal. But the other rebuked him, saying, Do you not fear God, since you are under the same sentence of condemnation? And we, indeed justly, for we are receiving the due reward of our deeds. But this man has done nothing wrong. And he said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And he said to him, Truly I say to you today, You will be with me in paradise. It was now about the sixth hour. And there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour, while the sun's light failed. And the curtain of the temple was torn in two. Then Jesus, calling out with a loud voice, said, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. And having said this, he breathed his last. Now... When the centurion saw what had taken place, he praised God, saying, Certainly this man was innocent. And all the crowds that had assembled for this spectacle, when they saw what had taken place, returned home, beating their breasts. And all his acquaintances and the women who had followed him from Galilee stood at a distance watching these things. You probably noticed that at verse 40, you're really picking up in the middle of a conversation, an ongoing conversation. There were two criminals who were crucified with Jesus. Matthew's gospel actually tells us that both of these criminals were initially railing at Jesus. Both of them were hurling insults at him. These men were using their, their dying breaths to deride Jesus. Breath was all they had left, really. Death comes upon those crucified by asphyxiation. They were using the precious last resources of their lives to mock the Savior. But suddenly with verse 40, we see that there was a change of heart in one of them. What caused that change of heart? Was it Jesus' prayer to the Father in verse 34? Was it his prayer, Father, forgive them? Did this criminal come to see that Jesus lived what he taught? Do you remember what Jesus said? taught his disciples in Luke chapter 6, verses 27 and 28. He taught them to love your enemies, to do good to those who hate you, to bless those who curse you, pray for those who abuse you. That's what Jesus was doing. And this criminal seems to have recognized in verse 40 that either Jesus was God or that Jesus was indeed God's Messiah. Both are true. He confesses in verse 41 that the crimes he committed were worthy of death, but that Jesus had done nothing wrong. And look at his humble plea in verse 42. Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. Do you notice how personal that is? He uses Jesus' name. He appeals to Jesus. Have you appealed to Jesus personally, directly? He appeals, Jesus, remember me. And I think he also expresses faith in that phrase, when you come into your kingdom. right? Everyone around Jesus is, is questioning Jesus. Remember how they put it, if. If you are the Christ. If you are the King. You see what he's done here. He has confessed his sins. I'm, I'm a criminal. I'm guilty. I'm worthy of death. He's confessed his sins, and he's confessed that Jesus is Savior and King. Leon Morris is certainly correct in seeing that, quote, in these words, they, they show that the criminal realized at least that death would not be the end of everything for him, and that beyond death was the kingdom. Jesus responds to this plea with a glorious promise. Read read verse 43 again. And he said to him, Truly, I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. There are several things that we need to take away from this wonderful reply. First, Jesus' reply is authoritative. He says, Truly, truly, I say to you. That phrase, it really functions like an oath. I swear to you that this is true. Jesus' reply is authoritative. Second, Jesus' promise is as personal as the criminal's plea. Twice he says, you. I say to you, today, you. If you personally embrace Jesus in faith, he will personally embrace you. Third, His welcome into glory will be immediate upon his death. Did you notice that? He will be with Jesus in paradise today. No purgatory. No purgatory. Only glory. There's no such thing as purgatory. There is only heaven and hell. And Jesus welcomes God's people into glory upon their deaths. Fourth, the outcome is not in doubt. Jesus says you will be with me. You will be. It's, it's certain. It will happen. Jesus has always kept his word. Fifth, notice this. Jesus is the reward. Jesus is the reward. You will be with me. Heaven is not heaven without him. Today you will be with me in paradise. Sixth, here we are reminded of the very beginning of the Bible. Paradise is actually another word for garden. That place of blessedness and peace with God. Here, Jesus is promising to recover what was lost through the fall of man. The second Adam is here confessing that he will undo what the first Adam has done. And in the process, he will restore ruined sinners to the very presence of God. This is a a bright and shining promise from Jesus. But now, now is the time for him to walk through the valley of the shadow of death. We are leaving Psalm 22. And entering Psalm 23, and the valley of the shadow of death. In verse 44, Luke mentions that it was now about the sixth hour. So since, since in the ancient world, they counted their hours from about 6 a.m. forward, this means that it was noon. Right? When, when the sun is highest, the light is brightest. But that's not the circumstance at the cross, is it? that can only mean one thing. This darkness that we're seeing here is a supernatural darkness. This darkness was like the darkness that descended upon the whole land of Egypt in the ninth plague of God's judgment. We're told in Exodus chapter 10 verse 21 that the darkness was a darkness that could be felt. And you notice here uh, in these verses that they were all there watching these things. And this supernatural darkness was certainly one of the things that they were perceiving and watching. We're told in Exodus 10.21, after that plague, that plague of darkness, it was followed by the tenth. Do you remember what happened in the tenth plague, the, the final plague? Do you remember how God punished Egypt? He took the life of the firstborn son in every home that was not covered by the blood of the Passover lamb. And here we have a convergence of the themes from the Exodus and the themes from the prophets. These themes of, of darkness and judgment. Consider what the prophet Amos said about God's judgment, how it was related to darkness. In Amos chapter 8, verses 9 and 10, he writes, And on that day, declares the Lord, I will make the sun go down at noon. And darken the earth in broad daylight. And I will turn your feasts into mourning, and all your songs into lamentation. I will bring sackcloth on every waist, and baldness on every head, and I will make it like the morning for an only sun at the end of it, like a bitter day. Or consider the words of Zephaniah. Chapter 1, verse 15. A day of wrath is that day, a day of distress and anguish, a day of ruin and devastation, a day of darkness and gloom, a day of clouds and thick darkness. What is happening here? Jesus is undergoing the wrath and judgment of God on behalf of sinners. He is undergoing the plague of darkness. His life as the firstborn son is being taken. His life as the Passover lamb. His blood is being shed. And all of this was necessary in order to reconcile and rescue ruined sinners. And as verse 45 comes to a close, we are told that the temple of the curtain was torn in two. That temple curtain which divided God from his people, keeping them out of his holy presence. That curtain was torn. Now the way to God was opened for all. Previously, only the high priest could enter into the Holy of Holies, and that only once a year, and only after he had offered a sacrifice. Do you see what's taking place here? Jesus, having made the once-for-all sacrifice, has opened the way to God. In Hebrews chapter 10, verse 19, we're told that we may enter into the holy place because of the blood of Jesus. Jesus opened the way to paradise for that criminal. You see here, he kept his promise. He opened the way to paradise for him and for you and for me. Jesus' work was finished and so he entrusted himself, his life, to his father. And verse 46 makes plain that Jesus was in control to the end. Jesus is laying down his life, just as he said he would in John chapter 10, verses 17 and 18. Listen, as you reflect on this, as Jesus crying out and entrusting himself to the Father, reflect on verse 46 as I read this from John 10. For this reason the Father loves me, because I lay down my life, that I may take it up again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down, and I have authority to take it up again. This charge I have received from my Father. You see this? His breath wasn't taken from him. He breathed his last. He was in control of his dying breath. I wonder... What is your response to all of this? What, what do you think of the sufferings of Jesus? His willingness to pray for the forgiveness of his enemies. His fulfillment of all of the Old Testament prophecies. His eagerness to save the vilest offenders who truly believe. If you are uncertain of what your response to Jesus should be, you can be certain of this. Your response should be that of the Roman centurion response in verse 47. You should praise God for the salvation that's available in and through Jesus and his cross work. You should recognize Jesus' innocence and believe that he died for your guiltiness. You should be careful not to have a response like that of the crowd who who beats their breasts and they walk away. Now, at one level, this this beating of their breasts is an expression of grief and sorrow. But we must remember what Jesus had said to the women who were weeping for him earlier. We cannot simply mourn for Jesus, for, for what he endured. We must understand why he died and what should cause us grief. What should cause us to beat our breasts is that he died for us and for our salvation. And friend, if you're here this morning, you're not a believer and follower of Jesus, let me encourage you to consider Jesus' death again. In Jesus' death, we actually see God's attitude toward our sin. For the truth is this, God is filled with wrath toward our sin, with, with anger, with righteous and just anger toward our sin. That curtain in the temple that was torn It served as a barrier between God's holy wrath and sinful people like you and me. Sin kept men separate from God as he would not allow, he could not allow sinners in his presence. This is what we learn in Genesis 3 when Adam and Eve were removed from God's presence due to their sin. If I can continue to be honest with you for a moment, what I need to tell you is that not only have we all sinned, But we've all mocked God's kingship. And we all deserve to die eternally for it. Like Adam and Eve, we've decided to rule our own lives. Thereby rejecting God's rule and deriding his claim as king. As the author of our lives, he has all authority over them. But sadly, we've all failed to keep God's good commands. Just like Adam and Eve. And God is just. His commands have been broken. And he must punish those who have broken his commands. And apart from Jesus, we're all in danger of facing his just and eternal wrath. Of being forever shut out of paradise with him. And being inflicted with his wrath-filled presence. The good news of the Bible is that in love, God the Father sent his only son, Jesus, to live the life that we ought to have lived, but haven't. The life of perfect obedience. God also sent his son to die the death that we deserve to die for our sins. Jesus suffered for sinners, but that is not all. For three days later, God raised Jesus from the grave, proving to us all that he satisfied the just requirements of God's law and propitiated God's wrath for sin. We deserve to endure hell for all eternity for our sins, but if we will humble ourselves, confessing our guilt like that criminal, daring to believe that Jesus is the king and son like that centurion, then we may have the hope of heaven with Jesus. And so friend, I urge you to turn from your sin and to believe that Jesus lived for you and died for you and was raised from the grave for the forgiveness of your sins. And if you want to know more about what it means that Jesus bore God's wrath for you and your sins, I'd love to talk with you after the service. I'll be at the door at the back. Please come and speak with me. Speak with your family member or friend that you came here with this morning. There's nothing I'd rather talk to you about than this good news. You'll notice there, at verse 49, it serves really something as a Transition. It sets up an important theme that Luke is deeply concerned about in the closing verses of this chapter, namely that there were witnesses to Jesus' death, witnesses who watched Jesus die on the cross and be buried in the grave. And I hope that we'll come to see something of the importance of this as we turn to consider our fourth and final point. Jesus' body rests in the grave. Jesus' body rests in the grave. Here we want to read and think about Luke 23, verses 50 to 56. Verses 50 to 56. Now there was a man named Joseph from the Jewish town of Arimathea. He was a member of the council, a good and righteous man who had not consented to their decision and action. And he was looking for the kingdom of God. This man went to Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus. Then he took it down and wrapped it in a linen shroud and laid him in a tomb cut in stone where no one had ever yet been laid. It was the day of preparation and the Sabbath was beginning. The women who had come with him from Galilee followed and saw the tomb and how his body was laid. Then they returned and prepared spices and ointments. On the Sabbath, they rested according to the commandment. The focus of these verses is that Jesus' body was laid to rest in a tomb. At the end of these verses, particularly there in verses 54 to 56, these verses also mention the fact that Jesus' disciples rested on the Sabbath. If I may, I'd like for us to actually begin at the end of these verses. Jesus' body was laid in the tomb on Friday afternoon. His disciples returned to their homes, prepared spices, and rested on the Sabbath. Part of the focus of the Sabbath, in all likelihood, had to do with making sure that we understood and understand that Jesus' resurrection took place on Sunday. But why would Luke underscore the disciples resting on the Sabbath? It could be that Luke wants to demonstrate that Jesus' disciples were obedient to God's commands. Jesus and his disciples had long been accused of being Sabbath breakers, and that his accusers misunderstood it. The Sabbath was not made for man, but man was made for the Sabbath. We were made to rest in God, his promises, and his salvation provided through Jesus. Followers of Jesus are those who have God's law written on their heart, They longed to keep the commands of God, and these disciples of Jesus were simply doing what their master had taught them. There were even exceptions available to these women. Because Jesus had died before the Sabbath, there was some leniency, and legally, they could have been permitted to go and actually anoint the body of Jesus on the Sabbath. But they don't. Instead, they observe the commandments, showing their faithfulness to God, their obedience. We know from his own teaching that Jesus came not to abolish the law, but to fulfill the law. Jesus shows us the law's end and goal. Jesus shows us what a a life of loving law-keeping looks like. And through his work, he transforms and deepens our understanding of the law. Jesus taught us that murder is deeper than a outward physical act, that it reaches into the heart. We commit murder when we're angry with our brother. Jesus taught us that adultery is deeper than an outward physical act. It is about worship, uh, sorry, it's about... uh, uh, lusting in our hearts is the same thing as adultery. It's lusting in our hearts after one who is not our spouse. Uh, the Sabbath is also deeper than an outward physical app. It's about worship from the heart. It's about resting in the work of Jesus Christ for our salvation. Before the resurrection of Jesus, God appointed the seventh day of the week to be the weekly Sabbath. But then, something curse-shattering and age-changing happened on the first day of the week. Jesus got up from the dead, inaugurating the new creation that is to come. We're going to think more about this next week, Lord willing, but what we need to understand now is that God's people don't gather for worship on Saturday anymore. So, well done being here this morning. Many have argued uh, that what we see here in verse 56 is actually the last Saturday Sabbath observance in the Bible. Now, following the pattern set by the New Testament church and positively encouraged by the disciples throughout the New Testament, we gather on the first day of the week to worship and rest in the work of Jesus Christ. We gather to worship and rest in in preparation for that rest that remains for the people of God. There is a rest that is still yet before us in the new heavens, and the new earth, as Hebrews chapter 4 verse 9 makes plain. It is because Jesus rested in his grave and was raised to inaugurate the new creation that we gather to rest in his crosswork and worship him in anticipation of joining him in the new heavens and the new earth. Anticipation should mark our gatherings together on the Lord's day. And now, if I may lean in slightly and pastorally suggest something a little controversial, it would be this. I'm not persuaded that we always appreciate the Lord's Day, Sunday, as we ought. Sometimes, we see gathering here with God's people, whether that be once or twice, as more of a burden than a blessing. Be honest with yourself. You've, you've thought that before, right? I don't want to get up. Or the evening service. I, I don't want to go back out there. We, we've thought these things. The Lord has given us this day to remember that there is coming an eternal day of rest from the weariness of sin. The weariness that we, we face and struggle with in the wilderness of this world. Consider taking one day a week to revel in the good news that the burdens of this world will one day be transformed by the arrival of the new heavens and the new earth. Though the apostles and New Testament writers do not command us to observe the Sabbath in the same way as it was observed in the Old Covenant, they don't say, Thou shalt not work on Sunday. They don't say that. I wonder though if you can see the wisdom, the wisdom in taking one day out of seven to rest in what God will one day bring to us. I think many of us need rest. Welcome to the very busy D.C. metropolitan area and northern Virginia. And I think many of us need to rest. And while rest can include physical activity on Sunday, because we're resting in Christ and resting in His promises, Maybe what we need is a weekly break from the cares of this world and a genuine cultivation of the hope of the world to come. Please don't take this as a law from me. This is not law's law. You've heard of Murphy's law, right? If it can happen, it will. Law's law is better than that. If it can't happen, it won't. That's a good law. Um, No, I I want to encourage you to consider resting, in the work of the Lord Jesus Christ. Prioritizing our worship of the Lord Jesus Christ may even provide opportunities to speak of Him and what He has done for us. Do you look for ways to reveal that you are a follower of Jesus? It was actually Jesus' death that provided the clearest opportunity for Joseph of Arimathea to reveal his allegiance to Jesus. So let's return to the beginning of these verses again. Take a look at verse 49. Luke begins following the body of Jesus after his death. And for those of you who watch crime shows, I'm sure you've seen a scene where one investigator kind of signs the evidence over uh, before receiving it from another. So, Luke, what Luke is doing is a bit like that. He follows the transfer of Jesus' body from Roman authorities to Joseph of Arimathea all the way to the tomb. He even tells us that there were multiple eyewitnesses to this process. Now, the characters of this scene are are clearly faithful disciples of Jesus. Though Joseph of Arimathea was a, a formal member of the council that had actually condemned Jesus and put him to death, Joseph himself was opposed to those actions, Luke tells us. Matthew's Gospel tells us explicitly that he was a follower of Jesus. And I think that's precisely what Luke is trying to express in the words, he was looking for the kingdom of God. Matthew's Gospel also tells us that Joseph was wealthy. When we're told in verse verse 53 that Joseph had laid Jesus' body in a tomb uh, provided by him, Isaiah chapter 53 verse 9 should be jumping into our minds. And they made his grave with the wicked and with a rich man in his death. See, Jesus was crucified with wicked men and he was placed in a rich man's tomb. Joseph's actions here were, were bold. He basically outs himself as a disciple of Jesus with this request let's not miss what is central. In verse 53, Joseph of Arimathea is treating the body of Jesus as a dead body. Not only by requesting the body for burial, but by wrapping his body in a linen cloth, a common burial practice, and by putting his body in the place where dead bodies went in that day and age, in a tomb. Luke goes one step further in noting that the women who had followed Jesus saw the tomb and how his body was laid. Like Joseph, they understand that Jesus is dead. They even return to their homes and begin to prepare spices so they can complete the burial process. Some, like our Muslim friends, want to suggest that Jesus did not die, that he only swooned or fainted on the cross. But that argument is simply preposterous. All of the evidence points in precisely the opposite direction. And friends, the Romans were really good at killing people. They knew how to make sure that they were dead. And frankly, those in the first century are far more acquainted with death than we are today. When somebody dies today, we are blocked off from really seeing the body as much as possible. But so many people in the first century came into contact with dead bodies. They knew when people were dead. Jesus was dead. And this is theologically significant. Jesus' death, that he was dead, that he was buried, is central to biblical Christianity. Among others, Jesus' death and burial is confessed in the Apostles' Creed, the Creed of 381, the Chalcedonian formulation of 451, and Article 4 of our church's statement of faith. This is no mere coincidence. Christians have always understood that Jesus' death and burial is significant and important. We know from Genesis chapter 2, verses 16 and 17 that the judgment due to sin is death. Similarly, we know from the Apostle Paul in Romans 6.23 that the wages of sin, the payment that is justly due to sin is death. Jesus had to die and be dead for us and for our salvation. And we know that since Jesus was innocent, he did not die for his own sins, but for the sins of all of those who'd ever placed their faith in him. This is part of Jesus' Humiliation. And it is part of those things which the Apostle Paul calls a matter of first importance. In 1 Corinthians chapter 15 verse 4, Luke is assuring us that Jesus died, receiving the wages that sinners like you and me deserve. And this is where I'd like for us to conclude. In Luke chapter 23, verses 26 to 56, we have seen Jesus led to the cross, crucified as a criminal, mocked by nearly everyone around him. And breathe his last. His body has been laid in a tomb. It's a sobering scene. It is also a scene which speaks of our salvation at every turn. In Jesus' conversation with the daughters of Jerusalem, as he's rushed to the cross, we are reminded that because of this, his work, we will escape God's judgment on this world. When Jesus is railed at by the rulers, the soldiers, Pilate, and one of the criminals, we are reminded that Jesus is the Christ, that he is the king, and that he remained on the cross in order to save us. Through Jesus' conversation with the criminal, the words of the centurion, we have the wonderful assurance that Jesus saves ruined sinners who come to him in repentance and faith. And as his body rests in the grave, we are reminded that he was paid the wages of our sin, so that we might have eternal life and be with Him in paradise. On this day, may our restless hearts find rest in Jesus. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we give you thanks that Jesus did not save Himself that he did not come down from that cross, but that he remained there to save us. Oh, Father, would would you grant us faith and grace to believe that he suffered for us and for our salvation. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.